Hello, welcome to Reed Scholars Live. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Fleming, current president of Reed Scholars. I am joined today by Dr. Joan Reed. Dr. Reed is the inaugural Dean for Diversity and Community Partnership at Harvard Medical School. In addition to being a pediatrician and a psychiatrist, she has created and developed more than 20 programs at Harvard that aim to address pipeline and leadership issues for minorities and women. Of these programs, the alumni of the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy, the California Endowment Scholars in Health Policy, and the Joseph L. Henry Oral Health Fellowship in Minority Health Policy create the Reed Scholars. While many of us consider Dr. Reed an adoptive mom, we are truly grateful to her daughter and her grandchildren for sharing her with us. This abbreviated bio in no way encompasses all the great work that Dr. Reed has done to influence students around the country and across the world. I invite you to see the full bio, which will be included in our listening notes from today. Welcome, Dr. Reed. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So how are you? How are you finding things in 2020? We've had uh, quite the year. It's an, it's an interesting time. You know, I thought um, as Harvard uh, closed our campus in March and we started working from home, I thought it might be a little bit uh, calmer but it has been twice as busy as it was before as we tried to continue our programming and be responsive to changing needs of our, our students and the various constituencies that we work with. So as opposed to slowing down, I've had to speed up. Wow. Yeah, that <laughs> probably not what we anticipated as the country was shutting down in March, but um, you know, what we've been talking about, especially on the podcast and, and just in general, on how this conversation um, around COVID-19 and health disparities has just sparked um, a lot of renewed interest, I guess, if you will, in the topic. But for you, this is, this is your life's work. You've been doing this for a long time, so not new to you. Um, and so I, I wanted you to just tell us a little bit about your journey um, of, and, and getting into health disparities work you know, 20, 30 years ago and how this conversation has evolved um, over the last few years? You know, it's interesting because um, when asked about sort of getting into this work around health disparities, I started the Minority Faculty Development Program at Harvard Medical School in 1990, and it's evolved into the more than 20 programs that we operate now. And oftentimes people think of that as this beginning journey around diversity and justice in health disparities. But if I look at much of what I've done throughout my career, there has been a link. So for me, part of this goes back to just how I was raised in my family and this awareness of time and place and civil rights, um, the history of my family and my uh, potential role in, in creating change and being a part of it. And so that was something from childhood. So marching with my mother, um, having my grandmother not let me march was a child. <laughs> Um, uh, which in the end, the, all the children who went on the march that day got arrested. Um, and so uh, and my grandmother did not want me to march because she couldn't figure out how she could tell my mother that I had been arrested. Um, but it is a part of the, the DNA and the makeup. Um, and as I move forward in my career from college of working with kids in prisons, to working with kids um, in psychiatric hospitals, to working with unwed mothers as a college student, and continuing that forward in medical school of teaching high school students and visiting public schools in New York and going on home visits with VNA through 
my time at, at Hopkins, where I was working with parents groups in the public schools in Baltimore, uh, and then coming back to Boston and working in a community health center for um, a number of years, being medical director in juvenile prisons or on the, the area board for mental health for um, uh, the Roxbury area of Boston, all of that's related to social determinants. All of that's related to social justice. And to me, it's set a foundation and an understanding and approach to the work as I moved to Harvard. So it set a, a deep appreciation for um, the limitations of a purely clinical, medical, write a prescription approach to addressing health disparities and an understanding um, social, of social determinants in real time, of seeing what it meant to not have good, safe housing or transportation or, or lack of access to food or deficiencies in the educational system. Those were ever present when I was working in prisons and health centers and public schools. Um, so came to Harvard with that as a backdrop, but started programs saying that you can't um, help improve the health of communities without community. They had to be actively engaged and involved. Could not do this work without understanding the assets and the benefits and the understanding that community brings to this. It's not all deficits. There's positive parts of community too and those voices and this um, understanding that we needed to be able to work together, bring the resources of our academic institutions in terms of, of, of people power, in terms of research, in terms of clinical care, but bring them together with other parts of our communities to really uh, address um, what feels oftentimes like intractable issues. Yeah. But the other piece that's here, and it's probably because I'm a pediatrician, so everything starts with me with kids. Um, but being a pediatrician means you are, are deeply linked to the potential that everyone has. So in thinking about addressing health disparities and, and addressing injustices, a part of it for me was how can the people that are most impacted be a part of the solution? How can they have a voice in this? How can they have a seat in the table? And as I've moved through this, move beyond having a seat at the table to have a voice at the table, to be able to have a leadership role at the table and being able to set the policies and the practices and how our resources are allocated. So it's a long answer to your question, but I consider it part of a, a learning process and a career journey that's led me here. And, and everything has brought me to this, everything that I have experienced and been exposed to has brought me to this space where I am now. No, it was a perfect answer. And I think, um, we have to be reminded sometimes as, as individuals going through our leadership journey um, that all of all of the things we are doing is building onto the next step. So uh, I think sometimes we can be frustrated in the middle, but <laughs> it, that's a reminder to keep middle or end. You can be frustrated anyway. <laughs> stay the course. Stay the course. Um, but it, you know, some of that also reminded me. So uh, recently, I had a um, podcast conversation with Daryl Gray, another scholar, and he was responding to an article about staying physicians should stay in their lane, right? Um, and everything about what you just said is that we don't have a lane. Um, that it's important to 
in order to take care of our, our patients and our communities in the best way, we have to take care of them as a whole person and understanding what the other challenges that they have. You know, if you, if you think about, so the uh, board, American Board of uh, Internal Medicine back in the early 2000s came up with a charter of medical professionalism and they have three principles. And one is about um, patient welfare, one is about patient autonomy and the other is social justice. So baked into our professionalism is social justice. So when you do this work, we are very much in our lane. Right. You know, if you look at the IOM crossing the quality chasm and these like six sort of goals or aims or tenants around getting quality healthcare, equity is one of them. So social justice and equity are part of our lane. It's it's you're not stepping out of it. And can you really improve the health of individuals and populations with not, without attending to their full health, their, their, their health in so many different levels. And I would say you can't. I would agree, I would agree. Um, shifting gears just a touch. I, one of the things I find fascinating about the recent conversations and how the conversation around health equity um, has evolved in the past few months um, is that the public is much more, seems to be much more com comfortable talking about racism and using the word um, and using it as a, uh, a disease process, which is very different than a few years ago when we were trying to have conversations um, and insert the concept without, not tiptoeing, if you will, but trying to understand how to have those tough conversations because people didn't like to use that word, right? Because it was so, uh, it's so charged. Um, so with more people trying to have the conversations with a lot of these organizations seeming to be more interested in, in health equity, how do you, or how have you negotiated those tough conversations when you're entering a new space and, and talking about um, subjects that, that make people uncomfortable? You know, um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I don't know if you know, years ago, it might've been under Clinton, there were these national dialogues around racism. Um, and it was very interesting because there were these like one time or two time dialogues. And the, even the concept that, the, that you could have a dialogue and that would change things was interesting. But the fact that there were, and so there was a national dialogue on racism and health that was actually held here in Boston at Faneuil Hall. And I was a moderator for that session. So go all the way back there. Um, so for me, uh, this is not a new conversation to talk about racism. I don't know that people feel more comfortable talking about it. Um, I think people of color have always felt comfortable talking about it. I think others um, not only did not feel comfortable, they wanted to deny it mm. or would question it so that when you raised it, it would be, are you sure? Mm. I find that hard to believe. Can you justify it? I think part of what has happened with social media is it's no longer, it's hard for me to believe that happened. And now you just sort of say, well, let me show it to you. Mm. Yes. Okay. Let's, let's go look at this together. Give me another explanation. And what people are starting to realize is this um, burden that people of color, particularly black people in this country have had to bear for so long is pervasive. It is um, ever present. Um, and 
starting to recognize um, the role of society, the role of individuals, the role of organizations in creating this state and in perpetuating it. Um, do I think people are necessarily ready to dismantle the, the structures that have maintained it? I'm not sure. I think there's a starting conversation. My concern um, right now is not so much that people are awake, because I think more people are awake. But our country has a tendency to wake up to something and then turn the page and wake up to something else. <laughs> And so how do we keep a light shining on this? How do we remain vigilant? How do we push the envelope? And for me, pushing the envelope means how do we um, better uncover those structural components of our policies, our practices, our programs, our history that maintain this inequity? Um, how do we uncover it? And then what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. And so for part of this, we have not been in positions, this is part of why the leadership is so important, to be able to uncover. Um, we have not been in positions and the work hasn't been done to understand, to both gather the, the data, to do the research, to generate the knowledge, to understand what is it that we need to do to dismantle. And then at the same time, how do we monitor, are we moving forward? We have a tendency to say there's a problem, we'll do something. We don't know if it's related to the evidence or not. And we don't track to see, did we get the outcome that we want? And I don't think we can afford to do that. So I think we need to be much more deliberate. We need to be much more strategic. We need to be much more evidence-based about how we move forward. We need to ensure that, again, that idea of seat at the table, uh, voice at the table, that, that these voices are present our voices are present um, in moving this agenda forward and we keep shining the light on it. That, that in this moment where attention is here, how do we put, um, how do we institute things such a way that it can be maintained beyond this moment in time? So are we helping our organizations set new goals? Um, uh, uh, to put in an infrastructure to carry this forward, to be able to have the information we need to be able to understand what's happening and what needs to, to move forward. And you talked about even, as you started out talking about COVID, we didn't have the information on COVID right. in terms of what was going on in our communities. We still don't have adequate information on that. And as we change our reporting information, Will we have less or more access to information about how COVID is impacting our communities? Um, so I think this is part of our work that we need to do right now. And embedded in this is this idea of um, how do we ask questions that have not been asked before in this opportunity? How do we not um, get siloed and narrow our lane in terms of where are those opportunities to change or change structures so we don't get uh, boxed in to well you can only touch this or that but to be able to say um, there are centuries of putting in place um, policies practices structures that exclude 
how do we take those down and what do we replace them with? And, and I think we need to be thinking about that. So in terms of continuing to build leadership around and making sure there's enough voices at the table, how do you see, um, you know, more so for you personally, but, uh, but other places as well, um, leaders of leadership programs and now we're uh, having more opportunities, probably some challenges as well, um, and we're in this virtual space. So how do you think training <laughs> is going to change over the next few years? <laughs> So, you know, I think um, before I get to training, one of the things that, that I think is critically important here is all too often when we're doing some sort of diversity effort, it's like you do it for five years, 10 years. Commonwealth Fellowship has been going on for 25 years uh, with this sort of constellation of Commonwealth, Joe Henry, California Endowment. Um, and then people will come out and say, well, we've done this for this period of time. Don't we have enough and can't we move on? And the answer is, Absolutely not. Um, you know, any time for me in this country when you start to say, well, we, don't we have enough leaders in this field? And, you know, they pull out their hand and they say, well, we have A, B, C, D. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. When you can start to name them on your fingers, that's a problem. And so we need many, many more in many places. It's not just government. It's government. It's industry. It's academy. It's uh, you know, federal, state, local, it's across the board. It's in our foundations and in philanthropy. It's all different spaces we need leaders. And so in this point in time, when it is so glaringly clear that our system is not equal, how do we make sure that we are preparing individuals to move into these leadership spaces? So it's even more important right now. I don't think that everything has to be in person. It can be virtual, it can be in person. A lot of this is about having the content knowledge. A lot of this is about creating the networks and the connections. It's understanding our history and the context for change and what's possible now. Um, it's identifying individuals who understand where we've been, have, are committed to where we need to go, but understand that part of their job is to create new ways to get there. So it's, it's not, how do I replicate the past? It's how do I think about where we are now and new ideas, new approaches. You know, you talked about, Dr. Gray, you talked about the, these individuals who are, are Reed scholars and alumni fellows um, doing very different things in very different places in their own way. That's what we need. We need that innovation. We need that creativity. We need that entrepreneurship move us forward. Building on the past, remembering the past, understanding where we are now, but moving forward in new um, and exciting ways. Definitely. So um, I know you are very busy and so we are coming to a close, but I wanted to just give you an opportunity to, um, you know, share maybe some words of inspiration or, or pearls of wisdom for those of us who are uh, newer to the space and, and for those who are uh, just now waking up and want to enter the space, um, and how, do, how do you maintain and um, what, what's gotten you through over the years? You know, um, so if I, if I, if I give you a, an answer for what really um, holds me together, um, 
I, I started this talking about family and I um, have three drivers for my family and it's God, family and purpose. That's what keeps me here. So it is a deep faith, a deep belief that um, there is something or someone greater than me that is driving this, a commitment to family and this sense that my life is supposed to have purpose. Um, and that faith is guiding me where I'm supposed to be with that purpose. But that also means that it is this understanding that you take advantage of opportunities in time you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, that, and that all of us can make a difference wherever we sit or stand. Um, that it doesn't always have to be big, but it's about how to have a voice mm -hmm. to stand up, to be heard, to push forward, to work with others towards change. There are these people who came before me that created a space for me to be in now. My role now is to create a space for people who will come behind me. So I am excited and thrilled to see the people who are coming behind me, who are amazing. So I would say anybody that wants to step into creating change, do it from where you are, from your organization, with your family, in your community, in your church, in your sorority or fraternity, wherever you are, um, try to make a difference. Try to live by your values, know what your values are and what you believe in and hold true to those values and make choices that are based on those values. And then hold others to the values that they espouse, including the organizations that we're in. I think that is a perfect place to end. Uh, you are always uh, inspiration for me and I, um, in, in awe every time I hear you speak and every time I talk to you, I've learned about 50 other things that you <laughs> have done in your career that I didn't know about because you've just done so much and helped so many. And we are very grateful and truly indebted to you. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. And mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing you soon when <laughs> Outside opens up. Uh, in person. It would be nice <laughs> to see everybody in person. Have a great day. <laughs>